Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. One family, 32 bullets, eight murders. Somebody had been watching them. Someone knew their habits, where they slept. Someone entered four homes in the quiet night hours and killed eight members of the same family on April 22, 2016. But who and why? Numerous theories abound. Questions, rumors. Two and a half years later, arrests would be made prompting even more questions. This is Method and Madness, Episode 4, The Piketon Massacre. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. It was a small village, rural, the type of place where everyone knew everyone. On the night of April 21st, 2016, into the morning of April 22nd, One or more people entered four different homes in Piketon, in Pike County, Ohio, and shot, execution-style, eight members of the Roden family. The killings would make national news headlines, leave people with questions, theories. Were there other victims to come? Some members of the community didn't seem so concerned about that. Were more members of the Roden family in danger? Who wanted this family dead? Let's dive in. Piketon, Ohio, a two and a half mile village of approximately 2,000 people, located in Pike County, 60 miles east of Cincinnati. The kind of town that's a blink and you'll miss it if you're driving through southern Ohio on State Route 32. Watching over the village, a water tower with Village of Piketon printed on it. On Piketon Road, sat the town's high school, home of the Red Streaks. In the summer, residents would buy admission to the Pike County Fair. Livestock shows, motocross, a truck and tractor pull. And in April, the villagers would be preparing for the annual Pike County Dogwood Festival, an event that consisted of music, local food, talent shows, pageantry, arts and crafts. In that village of Piketon sat Union Hill Road, an unassuming country road, and the home of the Roden family, our victims in this tragic case. Now, admittedly, this is not an easy case to follow at first. Seven of the eight victims have the same last name. Two female victims have the same first name, and two male victims have the same first name. In order to give the respect and due to each individual victim at the risk of sounding repetitive, I'll do my best to make it clear who exactly I'm talking about throughout this episode. 40-year-old Christopher Roden Sr., the patriarch of the Roden family, was known for buying and fixing up cars. He owned chickens, dogs, and a 500-pound hog at 4077 Union Hill Road. His cousin, Gary Roden, a former tobacco farm worker, age 38, was staying with him at the time. Chris's ex-wife, 37-year-old Dana Roden, lived just down the road at 3122 Union Hill Road. Although they were divorced, reportedly, they were working on mending their relationship. Dana lived with her and Chris Sr.'s daughter, Hannah Mae Roden, a nursing assistant, age 19, and son, Chris Roden Jr., 16 years old, 
a freshman at Piketon High School. Hannah May had just given birth to a daughter, only four days old. Chris Sr. and Dana's oldest son, Frankie Roden, age 20, lived nearby as well at 4091 Union Hill Road with his fiancée, 20-year-old Hannah Gilly. Frankie was an avid fisher and hunter employed as a maintenance worker. He and Hannah, who had goals of opening a daycare center, were parents to Ruger, a six-month-old infant boy. Also living with them was Frankie's son, Brentley, a three-year-old that Frankie had fathered with a woman from a previous relationship. And three miles away, living in a camper on Left Fork Road, was 44-year-old Kenneth Roden, Chris Sr.'s brother and a father of three. Close-knit family, three generations, mostly within walking distance of each other. On that morning that changed everything, April 22, 2016, it was partly cloudy, temperature in the 60s at spring day. Dana Roden's sister, Bobby Jo Manley, arrived at the home of Chris Sr. at approximately 7.45 a.m. She was there to feed the animals and do some chores, like she'd done countless times before. The first thing she noticed when she pulled up to her brother-in-law's home was that the dogs were outside, which was unusual. She exited her car, ready to get to work. But instead, she ended up making a frantic 911 call on that Friday morning. The call came into dispatch at 7.49 a.m. An out-of-breath and panicked Bobby Joe told the operator, I think my brother-in-law's dead. There's blood all over the house. She had found Chris Sr. on the floor inside and his cousin Gary, both dead. Chris Sr. had been shot multiple times, and it looked to her like they'd both been beaten to death. Bobby Joe barely managed to get out the details of the address, rushing to the mailbox to make sure she had the number correct and desperately pleading to the voice on the other end of the phone to hurry. The dispatcher, not knowing if the killer was still there and possibly posing a threat, told Bobby Joe to stay out of the house and that help was on the way. While waiting for first responders, Bobby Joe made her way to the home of Chris's son, Frankie. The door was locked, so she furiously knocked, praying someone would answer. Moments later, the door opened, and she looked down to see Frankie's three-year-old son Brentley standing there. He seemed unharmed, no visible injuries. Bobby Joe asked him where his daddy was. The toddler pointed toward the bed, where his father Frankie and his future stepmother, Hannah Gilly, lie in a pool of blood. Their baby boy Ruger was in between them, covered head to toe in blood, but he too looked unharmed. Bobby Joe lifted the infant from the bed, and ushered the three-year-old out of the home and away from the horrors that the two little ones were helpless to stop. Bobby Joe's and Dana's brother, James Manley, also lived on Union Hill Road and rushed the mile down to Dana's house to check on her, her kids Hannah Mae and Chris Jr., and new baby granddaughter. Inside, a third blood-filled crime scene. Dana, an employee of a local nursing home, who was described by co-workers as a wonderful person, was dead. Her children, Hannah Mae and Chris Jr., also slain, and Chris's cell phone pinging with messages from a friend who had plans to hang out with him later. Hannah Mae's four-day-old infant was there, nuzzled next to her mother's body, but safe. Hannah Mae's two-year-old daughter, Sophia, was not present as she had been spending the night at her father's house, Hannah Mae's ex, Jake Wagner.
Meanwhile, the deputies responding to Bobby Joe's 911 call arrived at Union Hill Road only to find out that there were two more crime scenes. A few hours later, a fourth and final crime scene. Three miles away, 44-year-old Kenneth Roden, a utility worker and brother of Chris Sr., was found by his cousin, dead in his camper on Left Fork Road, and another 911 call was made at 1.26 p.m. Eight members of the Roden family, dead, all shot in the head in the middle of the night. No coincidence here. Something very terrifying had happened in this tiny town. Someone set out to make this their mission, and they succeeded. No witnesses came forward. Nobody heard or saw anything. The only witnesses were the dogs, the chickens, and the three small children. The devastating reality that they were spared not because the killer had a heart, but because the children were too young to be able to identify anyone and weren't a part of the mission. Someone didn't care that they were witnesses to the horror, left alone at home for hours uncared for. Ambulances and police cars lined up and down the street of Union Hill Road that day. The surviving young children were taken away and cared for by family members, none of them injured. Later, three-year-old Brentley was reunited with his mother, Chelsea Robinson, who was no longer romantically involved with Frankie and wasn't at the scene of the murders. The toddler, who had slept on the couch the night before, told his mother that he had gone to wake up his father that morning and lifted his hand, but it had dropped. The family were fans of the AMC show The Walking Dead, and little Brentley later expressed that he thought his dad had turned into a zombie. Heartbreaking. Police tape blocked the area. Tearful family members called each other in shock and wandered near the areas asking questions and waiting to wake up from the nightmare. This was a massive crime scene, one that local law enforcement had never seen. The Bureau of Criminal Investigation was called in to assist local law enforcement with the investigation. The sheriff's office and attorney general held a press conference and the public were urged to contact the Bureau of Criminal Investigation with any information. Piecing together the crime and the timeline, murder-suicide was ruled out pretty quickly. It was obvious from the crime scenes that none of the victims had died by suicide, no self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Chris Roden Sr. had most likely been killed first, as his body was showing more signs of decomposition than the others. He was also the only victim that apparently had been awake during the attacks. All seven of the other victims had been asleep in their beds. It's possible the killer had started the slayings at the home of Chris Sr., knowing that as the patriarch of the family, he would be a fierce defender of his loved ones and therefore pose the biggest threat. Autopsy results showed he put up quite a fight, most likely surprising the killer or killers who had assumed that at that hour of the night, all would be sleeping. It's probable that the person responsible for the murders had used a silencer, as the victims in the other two nearby homes were still in their beds, indicating that they hadn't been alerted to the sounds of gunshots. It was also suspected that the killer or killers were known by the Roden family, since Dana Roden's father had said that if a stranger had stumbled upon the property, the dogs would have bitten them. The Office of the Ohio Attorney General stated that the eight murders were premeditated and carefully planned and carried out. Pike County Prosecutor Rob Junk made a statement pretty early on that it appeared the murders were committed by more than one person. 
The community responded in fear initially, with local schools on going on lockdown as a safety precaution, concerned that a gunman or gunmen were loose despite law enforcement confirming that there was not an active shooter situation. Extended members of the Roden family worried that they too may be in danger. For the following weeks, the entrance to Union Hill Road was blocked off as law enforcement collected evidence from the homes and conducted interviews. Large flatbed trucks pulled up and literally hauled the crime scenes away. All four homes, the three on Union Hill Road and the camper on Left Fork Road, loaded and brought to a command center nearby in Waverly, along with dozens of vehicles that were also taken from the properties. Now investigators could carry out their evidence collecting in one controlled environment where the crime scenes and evidence could be preserved. A $25,000 reward was offered, posted by a Cincinnati restaurant owner, Jeff Ruby. Anyone with information was urged to contact law enforcement. Posters were made with photos of the victims, hung around town with one question printed at the top. Do you know who murdered us on April 22, 2016? Friends and family paid their respects at the funeral services that followed, and memorials made out of flowers, photos, candles, and mementos for the victims were displayed near Union Hill Road and Left Fork Road. And just like any small town where everyone knows everyone, the rumors and the gossip began. Just days after the murder, investigators collecting evidence at the Roden properties uncovered a large marijuana growing operation at two of the homes. Hearing this information, Locals assumed the Roden family were drug dealers. Whispers of a Mexican drug cartel coming to town and murdering the entire family swept the community, and local news picked up the rumors as well. Even back in 2016, when I first heard about the case, I was stunned by the severity of it and turned to the true crime community online. Sure enough, those same rumors of the murders being related to a drug cartel were rampant. Other rumors popped up too, and speculation about possible motives— that the rodents were running a cockfighting ring, that there were fights between some of the victims and some locals regarding a demolition derby car. Even a road rage incident was among the possible reasons behind the cold-blooded killings, according to the village residents. Following those rumors, things started to cool down, and some of the town began to grow complacent. The residents ready to move on. They didn't feel that they were in any danger. In some of their minds, the rodents had played with fire and they got burned. Family and friends, however, didn't think so. They continued to push law enforcement for answers. Arrests needed to be made and justice served. The gruesome autopsy results came back, and the brutality of what happened to the eight members of the Roden family shocked the town all over again. Chris Sr. had been shot nine times, including in the head, torso, and an extremity. His cousin Gary, three times in the head, Son, Frankie Roden, was shot three times, and his fiancée, Hannah Gilly, was shot five times in the face and the head. Wife and mother, Dana Roden, was shot five times, and her daughter, Hannah May, twice in the head. Son, Chris Roden Jr., had been shot four times. And finally, Chris Sr.'s brother, Kenneth Roden, had been shot once in the eye. This was overkill. It seemed like rage-filled murders and very, very personal. For the next two and a half years, law enforcement conducted hundreds of interviews, collected tons of evidence, and received thousands of tips. Spouse and family are usually the first on the list of suspects 
when law enforcement begins investigating a homicide. Statistically speaking, it's the spouse, family member, or someone close to the victim that is most likely to be the one responsible for their death. Police began interviewing and monitoring the rodent's family members and looking through the mountains of evidence as well as phone records. Typically, in homicide investigations, whoever finds the bodies of the deceased are also looked at closely. Siblings of Dana Roden, Bobby Joe and James Manley, who, if you'll remember, had come across the crime scenes, were interviewed extensively and asked by police, who paid you to kill your family? Reportedly, upon conducting a polygraph test on James Manley, Manley was said to have failed. The following April, a GPS tracking device was installed on the bottom of Manley's truck to monitor his activity. Police had reason to believe that he was somehow involved in the crimes. Manley discovered the device six days after it was installed, ripped it off of his truck, and smashed it on the sidewalk. Police arrested Manley, and he was charged with vandalism and tampering with evidence. As of the recording of this episode, no further charges have been made. And finally, just when it seemed like the case may go cold and justice may not be served, in November 2018, law enforcement in Piketon held a press conference and Attorney General Mike DeWine announced that a family close to the Rodins were arrested. Four members of the Wagner family who had been friends with the victims. But who were they? The Wagners were George, age 47, his wife Angela, age 48, and their sons, George IV, age 27, and their son Jake, age 26. In 2012, Hannah Mae Roden, the 19-year-old daughter of Chris Sr. and Dana Roden, started dating Jake Wagner. She was 15, he 20. The families already knew each other, their parents were friends, and before long, Hannah Mae and Jake were a couple and Hannah Mae got pregnant. Baby Sophia was born in November 2013, but by 2015, Hannah Mae had decided to go her own way and called off her relationship with Jake. She and Jake shared custody of their daughter, and Sophia had been staying with Jake on the night of the murders, spared from witnessing the violent attack on her mother, uncle, and grandmother. And it's important to note that Hannah Mae's four-day-old baby that was on the scene that night was not fathered by Jake. But prior to the murders in April 2016, just weeks before those 32 gunshots rang out, Jake Wagner had attempted to talk Hannah Mae into signing full custody of Sophia over to him. Reportedly, she had refused. Nearly a week after the murders, Jake filed for temporary custody of Sophia on April 28, 2016. And finally, that June, he was awarded custody. Hannah Mae was deceased and the court was looking out for the best interest of the child. So why would one family, one that shared a grandchild with the other, be arrested for these crimes? Why would a man who once loved Hannah Mae Roden, the mother of his child, want her dead? What part did his parents and brother play in their alleged participation in the murders? How do four people conspire to kill eight others? The Wagner family lived in the next county over from the Rodens on a 71-acre farm near Peebles. The entry to the farm was guarded by large iron gates adorned with monogrammed W's. In the spring of 2017, about a year after the murders, the Wagners sold their farm and moved to Alaska, supposedly to escape from the memories of the crime that took place and the fact that some of those rumors around town implied 
that they may have been involved. Jake Wagner also spoke of wanting to shield young Sophia from the reality of her mother's death. Police, however, had their eyes on the Wagners and released a statement in 2017 that they were looking for more information on the family. Sounded like at that point they were persons of interest. While looking through the evidence collected from the crime scenes, police issued a warrant to search their farm in the spring of 2017, although the details of that warrant are sealed by the court. Apparently, some of the items found on the Wagner's property were forged documents, cameras, cell phones, and the parts to build a silencer for a gun, which was reportedly found at the bottom of a sealed well. Other items collected were a picture of a burned VCR, an Excel spreadsheet with over 500 data entries related to child custody, and a clip from Boondock Saints, the 1999 movie starring Willem Dafoe, Sean Patrick Flannery, and Norman Reedus, a violent film about two brothers that become vigilantes to wipe out the Boston Mafia. Investigators and the prosecutor's office started to build a case which in court would prove that the Wagners conspired together to commit eight murders, that a husband, a wife, and two adult sons studied the habits of the victims, the layouts of the homes, who slept where. They then allegedly covered up their tracks afterward and tampered with evidence in an effort to get away with murder. So what was the motive? Well, the Borough of Criminal Investigation, the prosecutor's office, and the sheriff's department say that a custody dispute played a role, but have been unclear if that was the only motive. Was it possible that an entire family was wiped out so that the Wagners could get full custody of young Sophia? Now, the Wagners were facing numerous charges, including eight counts of aggravated murder each. If convicted, each of the Wagners could face the death penalty. Additionally, two more members of the Wagner family were arrested, Rita Newcomb, Angela's mother, and Frederica Wagner, George's mother, both faced felony charges of obstructing justice and misleading investigators. The friends and families of the rodents have been trying to come to terms with the arrests and trying to process the why. They're eager to see the cases go to trial. As of the recording of this episode, the Wagners are in custody without bond. They've each entered a plea of not guilty and are still awaiting trial, in part because of delays due to the coronavirus pandemic. They maintain they are innocent, and their lawyers made a statement that the Wagners look forward to their day in court. Of course, they are innocent until proven guilty. But let's, for a moment, take a look at the facts of the case and dissect the crime and their alleged part in it. The way I see it, if custody plays even a small role in the homicides, then the Wagners may have carried out these crimes because they needed to eliminate any potential caregivers for the child. Getting rid of the other parent, Hannah Mae Roden, would simply not suffice. They had to get rid of all alternative caregivers. Okay, but why would an entire family need to be wiped out in order for a father to get custody of his own child? Why would a court turn to the father only as a last resort? Was there something in Jake Wagner's background that would prevent him from obtaining custody? Some reports show that Jake had charges against him previously for sex with a minor. Remember, he was a legal adult and Hannah May a minor when they started dating. Could those charges be a factor in Jake's battle for custody? And why would all four Wagners be involved along with the two grandmothers? My gut tells me that this is more than just a custody dispute. Time will tell. Custody battles can often be contentious. 
one parent making up unfavorable stories about the other in order to win their child. When awarding custody, a judge will take into account many factors, including prior criminal charges. According to a 2013 study issued by the U.S. Census Bureau, one in six custodial parents are the fathers. If the Wagners are found guilty, and if they did carry out these planned, cold, and calculated murders, it makes you wonder, what ignites a family to collaborate on a crime of this magnitude? It's not so common for two people to come together and decide that murder is an option, a solution to their problems. It's not an easy feat to convince someone else to go along with killing. If the allegations are true, this was four people who agreed that their only way out of this custody conundrum was murder, that this obsession and control of a child was worth brutally slaying eight people, leaving four children without one or more parents. And why the entire family? Was it so that Sophia had nobody else that would interfere with the custody? Was it so that there were no witnesses on April 22, 2016? Or were there other reasons? Did other disputes come into play? Were there other secrets left to uncover? Sophia Wagner is in the custody of a family member while the Wagners wait to go to trial. Gary Roden is buried at Miller Grubb Cemetery in Kentucky. Hannah Gilly was laid to rest at Hackworth Hill Cemetery in Ohio. A granite headstone, a memorial to five of the victims, Chris Sr., Dana, Chris Jr., Frankie, and Hannah May, is at Cy Oda Burial Park in Ohio. Kenneth Roden's headstone, where he's buried at Mound Cemetery, is engraved with his roles as son, brother, daddy, and papa. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. More episodes are coming soon. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.